Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, edited by Roxanne Gay. This is a book of short stories. The dedication says, For every person who has been scarred by rape culture and survives nonetheless. Introduction When I was 12 years old, I was gang raped in the woods behind my neighborhood by a group of boys with the dangerous intentions of bad men. It was a terrible life-changing experience. Before that, I had been naive, sheltered. I believed people were inherently good and that the meek should inherit. I was faithful and believed in God. And then I didn't. I was broken. I was changed. I will never know who I would have been had I not become the girl in the woods. As I got older, I met countless women who had endured all manner of violence, harassment, sexual assault, and rape. I heard their painful stories and started to think, what I went through was bad, but it wasn't that bad. Most of my scars have faded. I have learned to live with my trauma. Those boys killed the girl I was, but they didn't kill all of me. They didn't hold a gun to my head or a blade to my throat and threaten my life. I survived. I taught myself to be grateful I survived, even if survival didn't look like much. It was comforting, perhaps, to tell myself that what I went through wasn't that bad. Allowing myself to believe that being gang-raped wasn't that bad allowed me to break down my trauma into something more manageable, into something I could carry with me instead of allowing the magnitude of it to destroy me. But, in the long run, diminishing my experience hurt me far more than it helped. I created an unrealistic measure for what was unacceptable, uh, for what was acceptable, and how I was treated in relationships, in friendships, in random encounters with strangers. That is to say, if I even had a bar for how I deserved to be treated, the bar was so low that it was buried far below ground. If being gang-raped wasn't that bad, then it wasn't at all that bad being shoved or having my arm grabbed so hard it left five bruises in the form of fingerprints or being catcalled for having large breasts or having a hand shoved down my pants or being told I should be grateful for romantic attention because I wasn't good enough and on and on. Everything was terrible, but none of it was that bad. The list of ways I allowed myself to be treated badly grew into something I could no longer carry, not at all. Buying into the notion of not that bad made me incredibly hard on myself for not getting over it fast enough as the years passed, and I was still carrying so much hurt, so many memories. Buying into this notion made me numb to bad experiences that weren't as bad as the worst stories I heard. For years, I fostered wildly unrealistic expectations of the kinds of experiences worthy of suffering until very little was worthy of suffering. The surfaces of my empathy became calloused. 
I don't know when this changed, when I began realizing that all the encounters people have with sexual violence are indeed that bad. I didn't have a grand epiphany. I finally reconciled my own past enough to realize that what I had endured was that bad, that what anyone has suffered is that bad. I finally met enough people, mostly women, who believed that the terrible things they endured weren't that bad when clearly those experiences were indeed that bad. I saw what calloused empathy looked like in people who had every right to wear their, wor their wounds openly and hated the sight of it. When I first came up with the idea for this anthology, I wanted to assemble a collection of essays about rape culture, some reportage, some personal essays, writing that engaged with the idea of rape culture, what it means to live in a world where the phrase rape culture exists. I was interested in the discourse around rape culture because the phrase is often used, but rarely do people engage with what it actually means. What is it like to live in a culture where it often seems like it is a question of when, not if, a woman will encounter some kind of sexual violence? What is it like for men to navigate this culture, whether they are indifferent to rape culture or working to end it or contributing to it in ways significant or small? This anthology became something far different from what I originally intended. As I started receiving submissions, I was stunned by how much testimony writers offered. There were hundreds and hundreds of stories from people all along the gender spectrum giving voice to how they have suffered in one way or another from sexual violence or how they have been affected by intimate relationships with people who have experienced sexual violence. I realized that my original intentions for this anthology had to give way to what the book so clearly needed to be, a place for people to give voice to their experiences, a place for people to share how bad this all is, a place for people to identify the ways they have been marked by rape culture. As of this writing, something in this deeply fractured culture is, I hope, changing. More people are beginning to realize just how bad things really are. Ivy Weinstein has fallen from grace, named by a number of women as a perpetrator of sexual violence. His crimes have been laid bare. His victims are, at least to some extent, vindicated. Women and men are coming forward and naming sexual harassers, or worse, in publishing. Journalism, the tech world. Women and men are saying, this is how bad it actually is. For once, perpetrators of sexual violence are facing consequences. Powerful men are losing their jobs and their access to circumstances where they can exploit the vulnerable. This is a moment that will, hopefully, become a movement. These essays will, hopefully, contribute to that movement in a meaningful way. The voices shared here are voices that matter and demand to be heard. Fragments, Aubrey Hirsch. He says, you shouldn't wave those around like that. You're in the campus dining hall with your friend James. You've just popped a rust-colored birth control pill out of its slot in the rubbery blue envelope. You say, I wasn't. I was just taking one. He says, you should take them in your room, by yourself, privately. I have to take them with food, you say or they make my stomach hurt. 
It's been that way since you were 15 and first started taking them. That was years before you actually have sex, and even when you do, you are so afraid of getting pregnant accidentally that you don't let a man come inside you until after you're married. You take them because your period is a terrifying beast. The hormones gallop through your veins. You wake up in the middle of the night, twisting, your stomach lurches, your intestines heave, the pills help. You don't like taking them every day, though. Even the smell of the blue rubber envelope makes you a little queasy when you dutifully pull them out of your purse at the same time every afternoon to sedate the beast inside. He says, Still, you shouldn't let everyone see. You don't want some guy to see you taking those and think he can take advantage of you and there will be no consequences. You put the pill on the back of your tongue and the envelope back in your bag. James watches as you bring your water glass to your lips. You swallow hard. If rape culture had a flag, it would be one of those boob inspector t-shirts. If rape culture had its own cuisine, it would be all the shit you have to swallow. If rape culture had a downtown, it would smell like Axe body spray and that perfume they put on tampons to make your vagina smell like the laundry detergent. If rape culture had an official language, it would be locker room jokes and an awkward laugh track rape culture speaks in every tongue. If rape culture had a national sport, it would be, well, something with balls, for sure. You drink too much at the party because it's college and you're always drinking too much. The party is terribly generic, with beer pong and a ba bass-heavy soundtrack. Everyone is drinking foamy beer out of red Solo cups. You think there might even be a blacklight somewhere. Daniel knows you don't drink beer, so he has brought you a little bottle of cheap vodka, which you drink mixed with even cheaper orange juice. You flit around for a while, talking to one group of people, then another. A boy in the kitchen, a baseball player, takes his dick out to show everyone how big it is. It is, in fact, very big. The last thing you remember is lying down on the couch, just to close my eyes, you think, just for a minute. When you wake up, you're in a bed, in an upstairs bedroom you have never seen. Daniel is in the bed next to you. Your clothes are on, but your shoes are off. Hey, you say, pressing into your temples. Maybe if you press them hard enough, the pounding will stop. You fell asleep, he says, before you even ask. I carried you up here. You say, you carried me? Yeah, I didn't want to just leave you down there with all those dudes passed out on the couch like bait or something. Did you take my shoes off? Yeah, so you could sleep. Your mouth feels dry. Everything is blurry. You rub your eyes and take in a breath so you can thank Daniel when he says, I took your contacts out, too. You don't know where your gratitude goes, but suddenly it's gone. These stories aren't worth telling. There's no arc to them, no dramatic climax. There's nothing at stake, not really. You imagine your listener leaning in, and then what happened? And you have to say, nothing. That's the whole story. Oh, she says, her mouth a firm line. 
there are little bits of things that happened or things you think about. They're light on tension. You know that. There's no real peril. There's no resolution. Still, they... Uh, still, they stick with you. You think about them, even after they're over, sometimes for a long time, sometimes for a very long time. That's how you know they're important somehow. It's why you can recall the smell of that party, even many years after the smell of your grandfather's cologne has faded from your memory. When you become a writing instructor, eventually, you end up with stories about rape stories. The first story is a rape story on purpose. A student hands it in for a fiction assignment in the composition class you are teaching. In it, the hero finds his petite brunette English teacher alone in a church. He pulls out a 24-carat gold-plated gun with a pearl handle, holds it to her head, and rapes her, bending her over the back of a pew. When he's finished, he drives off in a convertible and leaves a bag of money at the police station to avoid arrest. You are the petite, brunette English teacher. You're only 22, just a few years older than this student who now sits in your office with his hat pulled down over his eyes. You're too timid to call him out on this threatening, misogynistic bullshit. What if you're wrong? What if he complains to your boss? What if he gives you a low score on your teaching evaluations? Instead, you critique the story, which isn't hard. It's a horrible story. The hero is unlikable, and the ending is ludicrous. You say all this to your student as he smirks beside you. And look here, you say. A slip in verb tense. Here, a comma splice. In the second rape story, the hero meets a girl at a party. She's beautiful, drunk, glassy-eyed, and nearly incoherent. When she's no longer able to walk, the hero, who hasn't had anything to drink, carries her outside to the beach. He strips off her clothes and has sex with her while she makes soft moaning sounds. Then he dresses her again and lies beside her on the sand. The tone is a bit confusing, you tell your student when he comes in for a conference. It seems romantic, almost. Are we supposed to feel sympathy for this character, even as he's raping her? The student looks taken aback, surprised. He's not raping her. They're having sex. You point out all the evidence that he is, in fact, raping her. She's very clearly drunk. She can't even walk by herself. She never takes any agency, just lies there while it's happening. The student cuts you off. This is, like, based off me hooking up with my girlfriend for the first time. It hadn't occurred to you that the student might not have realized he was writing a rape story. All I can say, you say, is that a lot of people are going to read this as rape. But it isn't, he says, weakly, sounding more like he's trying to convince himself than you. It wasn't. The third story comes to you in a creative nonfiction class. The narrator gets very drunk at a party. She kisses one guy, and another kisses her. 
She runs away and bumps into an acquaintance, whom she barely recognizes through a haze of cheap beer. He is aggressive, putting his penis inside of her while she tries to stammer, Wait, wait. You start the workshop by asking your students to give a quick summary of the piece. Somebody offers, It's about a girl who goes to a party and gets drunk and hooks up with a bunch of dudes. Interesting. Does anyone have anything to add or a different read? The students shake their heads. Well, you offer, I think this first part is a hookup, and the second part may be a misunderstanding, but I read this last section pretty straightforwardly as being assault. All of the students look down, rereading the last section. Some of them tilt their heads as if to say, hmm, the essay never uses the word rape, but it does say wrong. It says wasted and sick and dizzy and vomit. It says ignore. How is it, po- uh, how is it possible that they haven't seen this? How is it possible they are learning about consent from their teacher? The author of the essay is forbidden to speak by the rules of the workshop, but you study her as she takes notes in silence. Did she know, you wonder? Does she know now? You recognize the tension between I am a body and I have a body, but you are unable to resolve it. Have implies that this body is just a possession, that it can be lost or thrown away, that you can do without it. It implies, perhaps, that someone else could have your body and that your body would not be your own, that it would belong to another. That doesn't feel quite right. But am doesn't seem right either. To be a body suggests that you are only a body. You are meat and some blood. You are hard bones and flexing cartilage. You are tangled veins and skin. Is that all, though? You stand in front of the full-length mirror on your closet door and take inventory. Here are your knees. There are two of them. Two elbows, a chin, a torso with breasts that are heavy with milk, feet, hands, Knuckles, two earlobes, ten toenails, several dime-sized bruises, thousands and thousands of hairs. These are things you can't see, but you know they're there. Two lungs, a liver, the stacked cups of your backbone, your heart you saw once for an ultrasound on an ultrasound machine, your womb you've seen four times, but never when it was empty, nerves, ball joints, the intricate pleating of your brain. It is a long list, but also it is not so long. Looking at it now, you wonder, isn't there more to you than that? Sometimes people tell you that you're lucky, that you have sons, so that they won't have to deal with all this crap. It's true that your kids, by virtue of both being boys, will be in a privileged position, but the idea that they won't have to deal with rape culture makes you shudder. You very much want them to deal with rape culture the way one deals with a cockroach problem. Sometimes you think about what you'll tell them and come up surprisingly blank. It's the words that fail you, not the ideas. The ideas are there. Though you aren't sure exactly what you'll say, these are the things you want them to know. It's not okay to hit the girl you like and it's not okay to hit the girl you love. The world around you tells women that they 
should always nod politely, no matter what they're feeling inside. Don't ever take a polite nod for an answer. Wait for her to yell it. Yes! Not everyone gets sex when they want it. Not everyone gets love when they want it. This is true for men and women. A relationship is not your reward for being a nice guy, no matter what the movies tell you. Birth control is your job, too. Don't ever use an insult for a woman that you wouldn't use for a man. Say jerk or shithead or asshole. Don't say bitch or whore or slut. If you say asshole, you're criticizing her parking skills. If you say bitch, you're criticizing her gender. Here are some phrases you'll need to know. Practice them in the mirror till they come as easy as songs you know by heart. Do you want to? That's not funny, man. Does that feel good? I like you, but I think we're both a little drunk. Here's my number. Let's get together another time. Your cousin texts you out of the blue to say, I just got raped at the bank. Oh my God, you respond. Are you okay? Your brain goes turbo. You're trying to imagine which hospital she's at, if she's likely to press charges, why she's reaching out to you and what you can possibly do to make this any less devastating. The flashing ellipses appear on your phone to signal that she's typing. Then it turns to the words that you struggle to focus on. Yeah, I deposited my check in the wrong account, so I've been overspending on my debit card. I got like $175 in fees. You watch for the ellipsis, but it doesn't appear. After a moment, you realized this is the whole story. By I got raped, she meant I got charged bank fees for overdrawing my account. You stare at your keyboard for a while with its letters and exclamation points and frozen-faced emojis, and then you put your phone away. You can't think of a thing, single thing to say. Jordana has invented a new kind of rape prevention underwear. If she orders a batch of 5,000 pairs, she can manufacture them for two twenty-five per pair and wholesale them for $4 per pair. If she orders 10,000 pairs, she can manufacture them for one ninety per pair and wholesale them for three fifty. Given these figures, and assuming no import taxes, how will she get the rapists to wear them? Mark leaves work at 6.25 every evening, moving at a steady 6 miles per hour. He walks 11 blocks north, 3 blocks west, and 1 block south to get to his apartment. On his way home, he passes the diner where Gina works when she works the afternoon swing shift. She leaves work just before Mark passes by. She walks eight blocks north at an average speed of 5.5 miles per hour. Now that it's wintertime and starting to get dark, how far behind Gina should Mark stay so that she won't be afraid that he's coming to attack her? Carla is editing her online dating profile. When she adds the word cheerleader, her message requests go up by 11%. When she changes her body type from average to thin, her message requests increase by 42%. When she lists feminism as an interest, her message requests decrease by 86%, and the number of rape threats she receives triples. Assuming she goes on an average of three dates per month, how many hours will she need to spend with any given man before she feels comfortable giving him her home address?
A child is raped in Montana. The rapist is 31. The child is 15. The age of consent is 16. The punishment for statutory rape in Montana is 2 to 100 years in prison and a fine of up to $50,000. If, however, the rapist is only sentenced to 30 days in jail and no fine at all, how much older than her chronological age must the child have been behaving when she seduced him? This is your new thing. When a man yells at you on the street, you yell back. You are tired of pretending you can't hear these men. You are tired of gluing your eyes to the sidewalk in shame. You are tired of taking it or treating it like a tax you must pay for the privilege of being a woman in public spaces. You think, perhaps foolishly, that you can explain your feelings to these men and they will listen. You wear your resolve like armor and it doesn't take long for you to get a chance to put your plan into action. You are leaving the store, a plastic bag of groceries dangling from each hand. When a man walking behind you says, Hey, 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 you are beautiful. You stop walking and he passes you. It's now or never. You say, Can I talk to you for a second? He stops to face you, about three feet away. Why did you say that to me? Instead of answering, he just tries his line again. Hey, beautiful girl. Can I tell you something? He doesn't answer, but he doesn't move away. He seems confused, like when you push a f floor button on an elevator and the doors don't close, so you just keep pressing it. Why aren't you shutting up? This isn't what's supposed to happen. You say, when you say that to me, I don't feel flattered. I don't even feel angry, honestly. I feel afraid. Did you know that? Why? Why are you afraid? Afraid of me? Yes, you say. When men like you yell stuff at me on the street, I'm afraid that you will hurt me. Oh, I'm scary. Is that what you're saying? Now he moves. He takes a big step toward you, and damn it, you flinch. You say yes, trying to plate the word in steel, but it crumbles in your larynx like a tin foil. You start walking to your car. He follows you the whole way, shouting, Now I'm scaring you, huh? Now you're afraid of me? He's right. He is scaring you. You are afraid. But there's something new, too. Before this, you really thought maybe these guys just didn't know how their comments made people feel. You thought maybe they were just trying to be nice. Now you know the truth. They know it makes you feel frightened. They like it. There's still fear, yes, but now there's anger, too. So much anger that it boxes out some of your fear. The next time you yell back to the man yelling at you, it's easier. And the time after that is easier still. Now the responses roll off your tongue like perfect round stones. You've worried them in your mind and in your mouth until they are smooth as glass. Why would you say that to me? That is an offensive thing to say. It's hurtful to talk to women like that. You should never say that again. Your prize for all this effort is a small thing, but you cherish it. It is the astonishment on your harasser's face. Sometimes he even mutters a flimsy sorry before he hurries away from you. He doesn't want a conversation. He's not shouting at you as a method of engagement. He's just testing something out. He needs to fumble around for his power in the dark, like a totem he carries in his pocket. He wants to make sure it's uh, still there. Next time, 
you tell yourself when it's done. This man won't shout so readily. Next time, he will see the woman coming, open his mouth to speak, and for one second, one perfect second, he will be afraid of her. <laughs>